One is just a a kind of willingness to be present and open-minded. And to let go, if you can, of whatever your existing conceptual framework is. Although, of course, it's part of the way our mind functions to compare and contrast what we know or what we think we know or what teachings we've received with what we're hearing now. But if there's too much opinion in the mind, it's hard for anything new to actually get in. So it can be really useful to to listen with all channels if you can. To really let the mind be soft and and easy. Um, Just let it be present with interest. Tonight I thought I would talk about the path and entering the path and how we enter the path, the many different paths we wind up experiencing, actually, as we start and develop and continue on with our practice over the horizon of time. So it's a very interesting thing, eh, that you find yourself here on a Friday night. I can remember uh, doing a long retreat here once and in some ways Friday night was the, the hardest part because I had been involved in building the forest refuge. I knew a lot of the people who worked up here. So there were Dharma friends and when it got to be Friday night and I saw them all pack up and kind of go home to whatever they were going to do for the weekend and here I was, I was here, they were gone, and I was here, and it was the weekend, and that was the hardest part, because I was away from my partner, I was out of, uh, away from my family, I was away from my home, away from my normal routine, here I was, up here for a year, it's going to be a lot of Friday nights when you stay here a year. But here you are, it's Friday night, you're at the forest refuge in seclusion doing this kind of intensive practice. So how did this happen anyway? How did you wind up being here and doing this? This is an interesting consideration. You could say that entering the path requires some kind of initial turning of mind. And what that is, is different for each of us. You know, our our backstory, if you want to put it that way, is quite individual. I can remember uh, at lunch today with some of the staff people here, we were talking about how recently the anniversary of the uh, Hiroshima bombing was celebrated just a couple days ago. It was on the news. And we were talking about that and what that was and and, um, I said, well, you know, when I was in about fifth grade or something, that would be like maybe 10 years old, I read this book about Hiroshima you know, what it was like when they dropped the bomb and what happened to the people there. And uh, it really had a big impact. And part of the reason it had a big impact was that I grew up in a military family. And I was living on a military base and, you know, I watched the bombers on the flight line come and go, you know, in the course of, they're just part of my daily experience. You know, and my uh, child understanding of it all was, you know, we were we were the the good ones, and um, you know, we did good things. But then I read this book, and it was about what happened to all these people, with some degree of detail, including what happened to all these children. Hmm. And it really started the process of, or accelerated the process of of 
wondering what what was really going on, you know? What did it mean? And then when I was in uh, adolescence, I had the experience of a number of different members of my extended family becoming ill and uh, passing away after uh, significant amounts of suffering. And again, there was a kind of crisis with this, like, oh, they all, they all died. And then the generalizing of the insight, well, everybody dies. Well, everybody dies. Do you know everybody dies? Does anybody know everybody dies? Do you know everybody dies? Right? Because this is kind of part of our collective trance, right? That there's certain major facts of life that are kept as far in the background as is possible. Only brought out when they kind of burst out of the, the cave that we try to lock them in. But I came to a kind of decision that, well, you know, okay, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of suffering. I should try to do something about the suffering. I should try to address the suffering. And even if it, you know, can't work or, you know, I can see I'm just one little thing, you know, that would be something to do with a life. That would be a good way to use a life to try to help, to try to relieve suffering as I could. And so, to tie this back around to entering the path, finding the Dharma way, when I was mm, in my late 20s, I had been doing activist kind of work, human services work. I had started and worked with a, uh, in a couple of different shelters for uh, women who had been uh, domestically assaulted in their children. I was working, still working there, right? So I was addressing dukkha quite directly in an environment that was filled with dukkha. So I had a friend who worked there with me who said, you know, these people are coming to town. They're going to do like this weekend retreat out at this Catholic retreat center and, you know, they're really good, you should go. Come on, I'll go with you, let's go, we'll go. And it wound up being uh, a four-day retreat with Stephen and Andrea Levine. And that was my first, my first thing. But you have your own story too, and they have many roots. I describe the roots of that I can easily tell or easily identify, but of course there's many others. And that's true for all of you. So there was something that arose in you. You know, there's the classic version, some sort of dukkha of body or heart, psyche perhaps, and the classics, old age, sickness and death, sorrow, lamentation, and grief. Some kind of loss that destroys the complacency. And the Buddha's own story, of course, is very much like this. There's the classic story of him leaving the the palace, kind of breaking out into contact with the real world and common people and, and being really struck by the sight of old age, sickness, and death. And I find it really poignant the way he describes his experience in confronting those things when they first were seen, really seen, and really resonated through his being. And the words that he uses were something like, you know, I saw this this old man and I asked my charioteer, well, you." So, what is that? And, and does that happen to everyone? 
And when he realized that this was the case, he said, I could have felt disgust, I could have felt, you know, well that's, you know, a wrinkled old thing over there. But he said, you know, when I saw it, the vanity of youth entirely left me. The vanity of youth entirely left me. And he uses the same phrase. He says, I could have been filled with disgust when I saw a sick person, but when I saw it, I realized I am not separate from that and the vanity of youth entirely left me. And the same with the seeing of death. It sobered him up. So maybe that was part of your experience, some version of that. Or maybe you had some deep question about meaning or purpose. Why are things like this? Or maybe you were one of those people who just kind of ran into the Dharma by accident. You know, maybe a friend, you wanted to hang out with somebody and they wanted to go do this thing and, you know, you weren't really into it, but, you know, you wanted to hang out with them. And or maybe you saw a book. Or maybe somehow you heard a, heard a story, some sort of story or reference or saw an image. You know, maybe you ran into it accidentally. But of course, accidentally is one of those uh, <clears throat> words that we Westerners use where other people might use karma. But so it began, right? And here it is, continuing on, even unto this very moment of Friday night in the Dharma Hall at the Forest Refuge. So here you are, you're no longer at the entry to the path. You're on the path. So then the question is, well, what keeps you going now? What powers your practice at the present? And it might be the same kind of question, might be the same kind of motivation or inquiry that was there at the beginning, just at a deeper level. Maybe it's framed with more refinement because now there's some things that are understood. So if I could say like at the beginning my own question was something like, why does it have to be like this? Meaning suffering. And what can be done to fix it or what can be done to address it? So after a while with practice, then the answer, or a answer, became a little bit clearer along the lines of we suffer because things are impermanent by nature and can't be controlled in the moment. And when we try to control things and we can't, we suffer. So there was the seeing of Anicca and the fact that anicca plus attachment to it being otherwise is dukkha. So then my question evolved and it became something more like, how do I relate to a rising experience given this fact? So you could see the emphasis moved away from trying to control what was happening in the present to developing skill in being present with what was there, what was actually happening with wisdom. So the mind started understanding the task in a different kind of way. And maybe you've come to some change in your own motivation and your own understanding since you first started, when you first formulated, however unconsciously, your own goal or objective. So for instance, an example of an initial motivation that can bring people to the Dharma is to deal with stress, to reduce stress. And it can be helpful for that and for various other things, right? What you might call secular applications. And in fact, 
in our culture right now, it's mindfulness has become the the new fad word, right? It's mindful this, mindful that, mindful this, mindful that, mindful, 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 mindful jewelry, mindful. I'm not kidding, it's true. But you know, if, if you initially regard it as, well, it's going to be stress reduction to go to this nice quiet place and sit down and it's going to be secluded and there's going to be a lot of space. Hmm. Then you actually run the experiment, right? You have the experience. So I don't think that, for instance, if you've ever done the three-month retreat here, that you would be able to continue to maintain the understanding that it's about stress reduction. Right? So, you know, at some point you realize, you know, whatever was going on, it wasn't stress-free. And in fact, you started to realize that your whole body-mind system was getting seriously stressed. It was being challenged at all levels because you were being brought into direct confrontation with our limits of control. Right? Oh, that's the dukkha dukkha part of the retreat. So, you know, there was someone who recently wrote a, wrote a book, I think it was Dan Harris, and he uh, talked about his experience being on retreat. He said, you know, it was a lot like being dragged behind a powerboat without skis. Right? And sometimes it's like that, isn't it? You know, so if the initial thing was, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to get calm and then I'll get better marks at school or, you know, I'll be more patient with my children. And, you know, it can help somewhat at that level. But then you run the, the test, you use the methods, you do the, do the practice and you find out, oh, yeah, it does help in that kind of way, but there's other stuff that's really getting stirred up. Now I'm seeing other things that I wasn't even aware of before. <laughs> right? The lids, the fire's under the pot and the lid is the lid is rattling. You know, or maybe initially with your initial motivation it was something like you know, you want to get rid of a particular psychological tendency or personality quirk or to heal a particular wound, you know. There's this one thing that I really suffer from, this one thing, or, you know, I have this one psychological uh, cul-de-sac, or there's pr- this particular thing about me that I find very painful. And, and then you go into meditation practice and you think, well, I'm going to use this Buddhist stuff, this meditation stuff, and I'm going to use it directly to do this. I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to banish aversion forever. I'm going to become less concerned about doing things right. Uh, But you may notice after practice that the tendencies of mind are still there. Maybe there's less suffering in them, less self-aggression, more forgiveness. But you know, basically your personality is pretty much the same. Have you noticed that, those of you who have done a lot of practice? You know, your basic personality, I'm sorry to tell you, or perhaps I'm happy to tell you, it's going to be pretty much the same. I have a friend who's very, very extroverted and she told me that, you know, she wanted to go on a meditation retreat and meditate because she really admired people who were introverted and more self-contained. And she wanted to be one of those people. She wanted to be an introvert. Well, I know this person fairly well, and I can safely say that that part of the project was an abject failure. 
So this is an interesting thing because, you know, these initial things, we get in there and we start doing it, doing these practices, walking this path, and we find out, well, what I'm doing this for isn't happening, or at least it's not happening in the way that I thought it was going to happen, but some other stuff is happening. So at this point, now you've been practicing a while, the specific original objective you had might be understood to be kind of beside the point. So maybe you've seen through it and realized that the basic premises of the pursuit of this goal were unsound that there was something wacky about (laughs) what you were trying to do by coming to a place of silence and paying attention to the sensations of your breath, right? So maybe you've accepted, okay, I'm not going to change my personality. And I do handle stress better, but there still is stress. And my psychological tendencies are still there. And I can't get things pleasant and keep them that way. And I can't always be mindful. And I can't be concentrated at will. Not to jhana, anyway. So what's the point then? So then, what is it then? Once you realize that. So what's your practice then when you realize that dukkha is still dukkha and it's going to be dukkha? At some level. So then maybe you continue to do practice because you realize that your life is better, your heart and mind is better when you practice than when you don't. You know, and many of us have run this particular test, have we not? Especially those of us who have been on the path for a long time. You know, you do a lot of practice and then you get to a certain point and it'll, you know, be feeling like, okay, this is better, this is better. I got it. I got it balanced up. And then you'll, like, drop the whole thing and go back to whatever you were doing before, which didn't uh, include practice. And then, you know, watch what it's like then. And then after a period of, you know, days or weeks or months or years going, oh, yeah, I got, <laughs> I got to practice. Yeah, it's better when I practice. I got to, practice is better. It doesn't fix everything, but it's definitely better. And for those who have practiced a long time, especially uh, more or less consistently, there can come a moment when they actually realize how much has actually changed for them. Just like the old image of water dropping in a bucket, drip, drip, drip. With every day of practice, there's some evaporation of whatever you put in the bucket. But over time, over time, slowly, 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 in most cases, it accumulates. Years of practice can substantially change our subjective experience of life, our happiness level. Bhavana happens, you know. There's uh, the slogan, shit happens. Well, bhavana happens if the mind is turned towards it. So things are better. They're different. They're not perfect, but you can see how much better they are than they would have been if you hadn't done it at all. And this is a major thing. This is a a great thing. How wise to continue the practice over years, even through the inevitable doldrums and doubts and periods of discontent and dissatisfaction. Because really, what is the alternative to just, you know, let it blow you around? 
to let it have its way with you. So this is a very major thing. And people who have done years of Dharma practice will sometimes comment on it. I was at a, a retreat uh, a number of months ago and there was a man there who was in his mid-70s and he, he said, you know, if they're in the interview with me, he said, you know, there's a lot of young people on this retreat and I'm really glad to see them here. And if there was anything I could say to them from my deepest heart, I would say, you have no idea how different your life will be if you continue to practice compared to what your subjective experience will be if you don't. He says, I'm a very different man than I would have been. I can tell it. He says, it's like setting the rudder on a ship just a few degrees different. Yeah? In the short course, you might not be able to see too much difference. But over time, that slight change of course, those few degrees, really make a huge difference in where you wind up. So this is an interesting thing. As the practice matures, we, we really go through this process of considering our motivations and our aspirations and our understanding of what's really going on in light of the results we've gotten from the practice that we've done so far. So this process of sometimes disillusionment, sometimes discouragement, sometimes uh, feeling disappointed that what it seems to do and where it seems to go and how you seem to be is different than what you were hoping it would be is not a bad thing. Because the process itself is squeezing out the initial delusion that was present in the mind. You know, these ideas that we can sometimes have at the beginning that we're going to turn into some, you know, perfect person that never experiences certain mind states or, you know, we're going to have psychic powers or, you know, we're never going to be, feel uh, irritable again or, you know, we'll always have wise speech and we'll never hurt anybody's feelings or any of those kinds of things. We realize that it's not true and that Realization is a good thing because it opens the door to something better, something that's much deeper and offers vast potential for our own understanding in the direction of liberation. So we start with this one set of assumptions and motivations and hopes with practice and we try to realize it. Then as we proceed, the delusion gets squeezed out of our premises. And usually when this happens, we get the frustrated, angry, discouraged, doubtful, all the rest of it. So that's the painful part of the disillusionment. But the truing to reality is a very good thing. The process of getting true to reality is the dukkha, which ends (laughs) dukkha. Not welcome, but apparently necessary. And interestingly, the practice actually opens up if we continue to practice through our disillusionment. We start to realize, okay, I can't make it happen. That's not what's happening. We go through the process. We fight it, fight it, fight it, fight it, fight it. Scheme, plot, cry, wail, (laughs) become discouraged, become self-doubtful, all the rest of it. And at a certain point, 
we open to the very fact of disillusionment and realize this is what disillusionment feels like. Ah, disillusionment. Once we stop trying to make things happen that we have reluctantly figured out we can't make happen, we start to rest in the seeing of things as they actually are moment to moment, including whatever assumptions, projections, hopes, agendas, ego-centered goals, which might arise in the mind in the course of practice. And all these things can still be present, right? It's not like we can say to ourselves, don't want that. Don't try to do that. Don't want that. Just take it. Don't feel bad that you can't have that. Right? Well, you can say that, but that's, you know, what's popularly known as a hindrance. No, all these wantings, all these longings, all these desires, all the rest of it can still arise. But we get better at seeing them for what they actually are, which is mental arisings happening in the moment, happening lawfully, and then passing away. We start to see the thoughts that are tied up in them. We start to see the emotions that are tied up in them. Start to see the memories or fantasies that arise as part of the experience of these longings, these particular things, these very personal desires that have been woven into our spiritual practice. It's an interesting thing about being a human being. Because we really love to f- loved, would love to have immediate control of everything that's happening, right? Like, what happens next? Like, I want to have a really pleasant sound arise right now, and then I want it to last as long as I want it to, and then I want to have it something else follow it that I imagine would be equally satisfactory. Or I don't want to have this body sensation or I don't want to have this emotion and you know I want it to not ever happen again and all the rest of it. We'd lo- love to have that. But we don't. So it's interesting. We don't have that kind of control of what is immediately arising. But we have a remarkable amount of influence on what happens longer term, the direction of our own development, a remarkable amount of control. And if you take the Buddha's teachings in a literal kind of way, you could say, he says, we have absolute control of where it's going eventually because we all have within us the seed potential for fully liberating our minds. So somewhere between no control of what is immediately arising and ultimate control is the path path of practice. And part of that is beginning to see the impulse to control, the impulse to control the immediate arising as it happens in the mind. And to start to see through it. To see it as events. And to see it in the same neutral, mindful way that you would see other things. Like a sound or a taste or a sensation of the foot touching the floor. So these things are all still part of our mind stream. But the mind sees through them and begins to purify its relationship to them 
no longer operating in a way that's embedded or intermixed with them so much, confused in them. So the thoughts, the emotions, the longings still come, that they aren't operationalized, right? We don't try to do them so much. They're just experienced as events. So the heart and mind is getting more able to be present, to just be present without the picking and choosing and uh, strategizing and attempting to manipulate what's immediately arising. And this very deep tendency to manipulate arising experience starts to be undercut. And this change of understanding, this different way of holding what arising in our experience opens the door to really the heart of the Buddhist path. So we start in the beginning with this idea of what we want, you know, whether it, whether we could put it into words or whether it's just kind of like an inchoate urge or some emotional set. And then we go through this whole process of trying to get it immediately. And then we realize we can't do it. And then we have to let go. Well, we don't have to, but works better that way. The Buddha spoke of the Dharma as being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And when our various agendas and motivations and self-views become visible, and are no longer clung to as me or mine, the truth of anatta, of not-self, is, has begun to take hold. So this heart of understanding has begun to open, not-self, the truth of not-self, one of the three characteristics. And this is really an entry point into deep practice. as the personal holdings which are the real seat of our fixed, solid self-sense are surrendered into the process of awakening from delusion. This subjective experience of this very self that we think is in control or should be in control, we start to be able to see that in a different way. We start to realize that that self when it's present, that self-sense when it's present, when it has arisen, is not really what it seems to be. And mindfulness itself is purified and strengthened when it's no longer enmeshed with and operating from the fixed position of a believed-in egoic self. So it's an interesting thing, you know, I use the word egoic self. So let me comment on this point a little more, because it can be a point of real confusion. Some spiritual systems have this idea that in order to progress or in order to attain the ultimate goal of that particular system, you need to crush the ego. You ever heard any language like that? You know, you have to get rid of the ego or you have to crush the ego or almost as if, you know, this ego, this separate self-sense is illegitimately present and you need to find the giant eraser and, or maybe you need to, you know, use, I don't know, a scalpel or something or burn it out through purification practices or something. The Buddha had some ideas that seemed to run along that line. 
when he was a bodhisattva until he followed the implications of that way of thinking to its ultimate and nearly starved himself to death. And he realized, oh, this is not, this does not, this is not it. Because I've taken this idea as far as I could take it and, you know, the only thing I'm getting out of it is I'm nearly dead and I'm still not liberated. So the ego, the egoic sense, the self-sense, the individual self-sense, this is not the enemy. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to fight with it. You don't have to, you know, enhance it or do, or minimize it or any of that. It's just not what you think it is. When that arises, when that's present, when that's manifesting within the heart and mind, it's just not what you think it is. So it's just an arising. It's not actually home base. The dukkha happens when you operate from it as a home base, which we always do until the mind learns different. So you notice in the course of uh, our retreat, especially a long retreat, but sometimes you can see this even within the course of a day, How many different versions of this self-sense are there? You know? There's the, uh, I'm a really good yogi. You know, I've got this down. Or maybe there's like, God, I'm such a glutton. You know, I ate more than other people. Or maybe it's like, oh, I'm such a, a slacker. You know, I slept extra this morning. Or maybe it's, oh, I'm hopeless. Look at those people, they're so quiet. Or maybe it's kind of dormant, that whole self-sense for a while. Now that's a really interesting thing to notice, isn't it? The periods of time when the self-sense is kind of dormant, but the mind is awake, it's present, it's mindful, it's attending to what's there but the self-sense just kind of isn't there. Or maybe it's there in the background. Hmm. It's kind of interesting the first few times that happens, is it not? It's like, I'm here, but I'm not here. Am I here? Am I not here? Am I here? Am I not here? Yes, you're there. You are there. You are still there. Even without the do this, do that, that's good, that's bad, try this, try that, you're better, you're worse, you're the same. Right? So a big part of the practice is when you start to realize, well, that's just you're better, you're worse, that you're better, that's that's the arising of that one. Right? You see how Seeing that and knowing that is that's the arising of that one is a whole different one than I'm bad, I'm bad, and really being enmeshed in it, being confused about it, thinking that's that's you. Really having that identified view of it, not understanding that that and everything that's present there in relationship, the thoughts, the emotions, the memories, the fantasies, the the view, these are all just arisings, right? It's a constellation, it's a construct, it's a configuration of a particular way mental factors and physical factors have come together in that manifestation for that moment. That's not your permanent home. So this is a huge point of change in the practice when the mind starts to get this. So now the question is, what's the point of the path when its relative benefits have been obtained? You know, the stress reduction and maybe you're nicer to yourself and others and the deluded hopes have been seen through. So this is really the point where 
the deepest aspirations can come forward to be recognized and open to and realized. So whatever we sought at the beginning has been clarified and refined and what could be gained has been gained. What you needed to see as delusion has been seen as delusion and been seen through, including the identification with the arising of various forms of self-view fixed self-view, this idea that there's a fixed separate self that stands outside of, behind, or which owns in some sort of way this ongoing process of arising and passing away. So if you want to know what you are, you're more like a process than a thing. So anything that arises as part of the process, that's not it's not a self. So when you get to this point, the next part of the path, the practice of the path, is to walk it to the conclusion described by the Buddha, which is the collapse of resistance to the truth, right? The mind gets more comfortable just resting with what immediate experience is as it presents itself. It doesn't make anything more out of it, right? It doesn't spin yarns about it. It doesn't fend off certain things because they're threatening. It doesn't glom onto certain things because it prefers them. The resistance to the truth collapses when the fixed self-view is seen through. And this helps support the awakening of the heart and mind at the deepest levels to the truth of things as they are. So to see the truth of how things are is the uprooting of the craving which is born from delusion. Because once you understand how things really are, you realize they can't be any different in the immediate than what they are. So the mind doesn't even bother. Doesn't bother with the kabuki dance the flow of resistance to arising experience ceases. And this is part of the process of opening the deepest potential of the path. So you see, it's really interesting how we start, you know. We start at the beginning with reading about Hiroshima or whatever the entry point was for you. And what came from that? You know, hard times in childhood. And then the search. And then the entry into the path. And then the walking of the path. And then finding out, well, it's not working the way I was hoping. And then noticing how it is actually working. And embracing that. And going through the whole process of disillusionment where the other stuff gets squeezed out in an often unpleasant fashion, right? The other stuff that you want, 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 but you can't start to understand isn't really available. And then the process of accepting that. Figuring out, well, okay, if the choice is between fantasy that I know at this point can't satisfy and doesn't work, or reality which may not always be pleasant, but at least it's true, Uh, I guess I'll have to go with the real part. Because the other way is not a refuge. 
You can't find refuge in unreality. You have to find it somehow within the actual truth of how things are. With what you can actually know subjectively in the immediate, in the seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, feeling, intending. Somehow it has to be found right there within that field of experience in right relationship to that field of experience. And that's the the whole process of cultivation. And that can sound in a certain kind of way, like, well, that's really like a head thing, right? You know, you just like understand it and then you feel, you know, and then you accept it. But no. Because everything, every dimension of your being is brought into and fed into this process of purification, of understanding. Every part of you. The deepest longings, the deepest emotions, memories, aspirations, physical sensations, it's all, it's all in. It all has to be completely in. Because you have to touch the whole field. The whole field will arise a potential experience will arise in the course of this process. So it's not a head-only trip. You can read a lot, a lot of Dharma books. But it can be a way of disconnecting with the other parts, the other pieces, the other sense doors, the totality of what it is to be a human being. So we work with it all. We work with it all. So it's a big enterprise, you know? And yet so simple. So, so simple. What could be simpler? Just being, just being at the forest refuge on a Friday night and noticing you feel lonely when your friends drive away. Ah. Uh, This is wanting, this is wanting. Oh, this is lonely, lonely, lonely. This is what it feels like, sad, trembling, remembering. Oh, this is how it is, this is what it is. And then it passes, like everything else. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.